0: Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. I got to take Reed yesterday to his first Ohio State football game. It was a blowout and it was cold, but we made it all the way down there um, got to the stadium made it all the way up to our seats we were in the C deck which is up at the top row 20 uh, seat 11 and 12 it was super fun section 11 and we get up there and you know walking up the steps it's pretty steep and Reed's not really all the way looking just yet and he gets it up there and he sits down and he sees 102,000 people he's like whoa and I know all he's thinking about is like the number of views on YouTube, that equals, and that's a lot, you know, 100,000, he's like doing the math probably, and I'm just kidding, and, um, and all of a sudden, you know, we're sitting there getting ready to enjoy the game, and uh, they've done all the um, running out of the tunnel, and there's these two open seats just right in front of us that are a little bit more, our, our row was really tight and squeezed, and um, these two seats in front of us, I was starting to think, you know what I'm thinking, right? And these people don't show up, we might bump down a row and sit there and spread out a little bit, and sure enough, as soon as the game starts, these two guys walk up, and they ruin our day by taking our seat. <laughs> it turns out that these two guys, one of them was Lisa's cousin from Shawnee. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I tap him, we start chatting, and um, there's just one guy between us, and I'm talking down, and we're, we're talking to each other, and Of course, it turns into like, hey, what are you doing up here? And, oh, this is great. And start talking about five, six, seven other things. And I notice the guy next to me is like, oh, man, family. They just, like, talk all the time, don't they? And I can tell he doesn't want to be involved in the family dialogue that's happening. And what's funny about that is, boy, those are some of the moments that can be really awkward, you know, when family are, like, talking about things, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But sometimes you can't just look away, right? uh when it's happening. Well this story in John chapter 2 is really interesting and unique for that because we see an interaction between Jesus and his mom that when you first read it catches you off guard a little bit, doesn't it? A problem arises where they're at a wedding and they run out of wine and the mother of Jesus looks to him and says, Hey, they're out of wine and he calls her woman and then says Why are you trying to get me to put my nose in business that's not my business? It's kind of like one of those moments where you're like, I can't look away, but man, it's sort of awkward right now. I love this story about John chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding, for a lot of reasons, mainly because it's really familiar to us. It's really normal. You see, Jesus here is at a wedding, and something goes wrong, and if you've been to weddings or been in weddings, you know... Almost inevitably, something's going to go wrong at a wedding, and something does go wrong. And there's two family members hashing some business out, and man, there's so much you can learn about Jesus. I just love the human element of Jesus in this story, where we learn things like Jesus having a community and a friends. Jesus was a man that was invited to a wedding. That tells you a lot about him. That he was a guy who had friends. He was a guy who had people that were connected to him. Cana, this area, was a tight-knit community, and Jesus was very much a part of it. Jesus and his mom, Jesus, pardon me, had a mom that wanted him to tell him what to do. Most likely, Joseph was gone at this point. All the indications are that he probably died somewhere between Jesus when he was 12 and this wedding. Um, we just don't hear anything about him in the way that Jesus takes care of her, and especially at the cross when he tells John, this is now your mother, please take care of her. We get the idea that Jesus is probably his uh, earthly father, Joseph, had passed away. And Mary is doing something that's probably habit for her. A problem arises, my oldest son is here, will you please help me take care of this? This is probably someone that is close to Jesus and Mary at this wedding, and Mary wants help. And it's a special moment because in this moment, Mary simultaneously knows who Jesus is, but doesn't know. She remembers the angel visit. She remembers the prophet and the prophetess who told about who Jesus was. She remembers Luke chapter 2, the story that Luke tells about leaving Jesus in Jerusalem and Jesus saying, I've got to be about my Father's business. She remembers these things and she knows he's special. But she doesn't know exactly how that all works out. And Jesus is here is very normal too because we see him having to take a stand on his own when he says to her, I must be about my father's business. He gets an order from his mom, but he knows his obligation is to the father when he says it's not my time yet. Only God alone determines what I do and where I do. My father in heaven. And Jesus was willing to help out. sort of interesting, isn't it, this story, that Jesus was willing to help out. This was a socially embarrassing situation, but it wasn't life-threatening. Nobody's life was on the line because they ran out of wine at the wedding. It just meant the party ended early, people had to go home, and the family that was hosting the wedding was probably pretty embarrassed to show their face around town for a long time. So a lot of people have wondered, I think it's kind of cool that Jesus helped them out, but a lot of people have wondered why would jesus use his power in this way and even more so why would john choose to record this in a narrative that's intended to help us know who jesus is to become christians to become followers of him that's why john wrote the stories that he wrote he told us in chapter 20 i've recorded these things so you'll believe in him why would he tell us this story well if you look down in verse 11 He tells us exactly why. In verse 11 it says, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You see, this story is more than just a solution to some social embarrassment. Jesus capitalizes on this moment to use it as a sign of his glory. His glory meaning to tell us who he really is, to explain to us his greatness, to manifest to us the reality about him. Now how in the world is Jesus going to take solving a wedding problem, being out of wine and making water into wine, and declare to us a sign to be crystal clear about who he is? Well, he does it perfectly if you watch this story very carefully. This story is simple, but it is profound. And what Jesus does in this story is he takes a common moment and makes himself a living parable for his disciples to never forget to know who he is. Let's answer two really simple questions from this story. One, Jesus tells us in living parable form the first thing. What he came to do here on earth. Yes, this story at the wedding, water to wine, has within it the reason Jesus came to earth. His earthly mission, his purpose is on full display in this simple little event. It all starts with the way he answers his mom. So if you go back to that part of the story, right, it's a little bit strange. They're out of wine, and Mary looks at Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. And as I mentioned, Cana was a small, tight-knit community. There might have been less than 500 people that lived there. So these people were close. They loved each other. They knew each other. Most likely, they could have been family members even of Mary or Joseph and Jesus. And they run out of wine, and Mary's obviously bothered by it. She's upset. Maybe she doesn't want the party to end, or maybe she had some hand in helping get the party ready. But they're out of wine, and she turns to Jesus and says, We're out. And his answer's weird, isn't it? He goes, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, let me pause and address the woman situation. Do not apply 2019 standards of the way people use the word woman to Jesus' day and age. It is not disrespectful, but it is deliberate. This is like Jesus, instead of saying, Mom, I don't want to deal with this, this is like Jesus saying, Ma'am, right now is not my time. He's being respectful, but he's being very distinct, calculated. It comes across a little bit cold, and it probably should, because Jesus in this moment is asserting to her, from this point forward, my life, is about one will and one will only. It's not my brothers, it's not my sisters, it's not you, it's not even me. It's about the will of my Father. My hour has not yet come. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, why should I stick my nose into this? My time has not yet come. And it tells you something. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, it tells you something what's on Jesus' mind in this moment. You see, Jesus is a lot like us. He's very human in this moment. He's doing what most people do who are not yet married at a wedding. He's thinking about his own wedding. That's what a lot of people do when they go to weddings, right? Especially if they haven't been married yet. They start watching, they start thinking about their own wedding. The you know, the bride typically bears the brunt of the expense or her family for weddings, but not in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the full effort of the wedding fell upon the shoulders of the groom and his family it was on him so he probably would have had like a pinterest account and been you know into all that planning and it wouldn't have been the lady imagine living in those day and age right but this would have fell on the groom and when jesus here's how we know he's thinking about this he says my hour has not yet come my hour Now this is code word for John the Apostle when he says, my hour. Chapter 7, verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 23. Chapter 13, verse 1. These are all references in the Gospel of John when Jesus uses, or John uses the phrase, his hour or my hour. And what he's talking about is the moment of his death. His hour is the moment of his crucifixion when Jesus will have to lay his life down and he will die on the cross, he's thinking about how much it's going to cost for this wedding to happen. He's also, you see, you notice when they say, we need wine, and he says, it's not my time. He's not really talking about this wedding or this wine. He's talking about his wedding. He's thinking about it. And we learn this by how he delivers the wine. Do you notice how he delivered the wine to the people? It's really interesting, isn't it? it says when he he tells the servants, fill up the stone jars, and they were special stone jars, hewn out of one piece of stone that were massive, and they were used for one reason, Jewish purification. Jewish purification, right? They had these jars that would sit in front of the temple. When a person would come to enter into the temple, they would have to wash ceremonially ceremonially to declare, I am a sinner, needing cleanse to enter into God's presence. Before a wedding, the bride and the groom would both go, and they would be ceremonially washed in this water guests when they came to the wedding and were going to eat would ceremonially wash their hands you see to the Jewish person this ritual of washing was essential because they knew they didn't belong in the presence of God they were not sacred they were not holy people they were sinners and this ritual of washing was necessary to be clean in the presence of God and Jesus says I want you to use those jars fill them up with water and then serve from them. Think about eating hand-washing water, by the way. That's what this was. They had jars for drinking that were different. This water and this jar was for purification. It was hand-washing water. And Jesus says, use them. Here's what he's trying to say. This old way that you guys have always thought about getting yourself cleansed to be in the presence of God is no longer the way it's going to work. I will take your old way and I'm going to serve out of that new wine, better wine. It reminds us of the cup that he talks about having to drink when he's in the upper room, when he says, or I'm sorry, not in the upper room, but when the cup he has to drink when he's in the garden, when he says, God, if there's any other way, any other way for this to happen, make it that way. Let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, I'll drink it. And it reminds us of the cup in the upper room when he said to his followers, this cup right here, full of this fruit of the vine, is actually my blood that is poured out for the covenant that we're going to enter into, this marriage we're going to enter into, and I will drink of it new again with you in the kingdom. It's going to become a cup of blessing. This cost was heavy, this idea of taking the cup, but Jesus did it. He paid the price for our wedding, and he delivered the new wine. This story doesn't just tell us what Jesus came to do. It also tells us who Jesus came to be. There's two really important characters in this story that fail at their job, that Jesus saves their skin. The first one is the master of the feast, and we learn that Jesus came to be the true and greater master of the feast. Now, his job was to be the right hand to the groom's family, to plan out the number of people that are going to be there, to figure out what the provisions were going to be, to know what the cost was going to be, to make sure all the logistics were taken care of. He's kind of like the wedding planner, so to speak, and he's making sure everything happens. So the failure on his part was not, not that he didn't have enough money, was that he didn't plan properly. He ran out of the wine. You see, his job was to help the groom be fully prepared, but he wasn't. His job was to make sure this party, this feast, went well and didn't. Reminds me so much of how Jesus describes what the kingdom of God would be like. In Matthew 22, verse 2, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a feast. Now here's why this is important. The kingdom of heaven, referencing those who come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, who join the body of Christ, the church, are part of the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God doesn't have feasts like occasionally, like the Jews had three major ones in their calendar year. He doesn't say that the kingdom of God will have feasts. He says the kingdom of God is a feast. The experience of being in the kingdom of God is the experience of being at a feast, never ending. That's why the Bible over and over uses sensory words for us to understand how we relate to God. Like Psalm 34 says, to taste and to see that the Lord is good. He's calling for us to use these sensory ideas to know what it's like to connect to God. Jesus said you've got to hunger and thirst He's using words to say not just you need to know more to know who God is, or you need to learn more or understand more. He says you've got to hunger for it. You've got to thirst for it, meaning there's got to be something you want that's more than just what you're experiencing. And then you begin to, if you hunger and thirst, you begin to experience what the Bible calls delight, like Psalm 37 talks about delighting in the Lord. And then ultimately, if you hunger and thirst and begin to delight in God, you'll have what the Bible describes as satisfaction. Do you see all these sensory words about what it's like to connect to God? You see, what he's driving us to is understanding that being connected to God is more than just learning new things. It's experiencing him, knowing him fully, and being satisfied in him. I like to think of it this way. It's sort of like, any of you ever have to go to two Thanksgiving meals on uh, Thanksgiving Day? You know, it's not a punishment, it's wonderful, right? But if the first one you go to, cross your fingers, is great. It's got all the right things, you know, the stuffing doesn't have celery in it, and there's whipped cream for the pumpkin pie, and, you know, they do it all the right way. Um, And you eat and eat, and you think, right? Okay, I know i got to go to another one, so let's pace ourselves. And by the time you finish your third plate, you've just thrown the rules out, and you're so full And you have to go to the next one. You get to the next one, and that person wants to feed you right. And how do you feel? You're like, oh, man, I'm good, right? You see, Jesus is saying, being in the kingdom is like saying, man, I'm good. I got everything I need. I delight in him. I'm satisfied. The kingdom is like a feast. And Jesus is the true master of the feast that never runs out of what we need. But he's also the true groom you're really looking for. This was the groom's fault. He needed to have enough provisions for this party to happen. Now, wine was a big deal for the Jewish person. It was a sign of provision, a sign of blessing, a sign of source of joy from God. Psalm 104 talks about this. And the groom ran out of this. The groom was supposed to supply the source that they believed to be a a, a blessing to people, And the groom ran out, and here's the deeper truth that you've got to get. With every other groom in life, with every other being in life, with every other opportunity in life, the wine eventually runs out whether it be another person that you believe that can fulfill you, another job that you believe will be the satisfaction of your soul, whatever it is that you fill in the blank that says, when I have this, my life is right, will eventually run out. It could be your health, it could be money, it could be a person, it could be a purpose or a job, that will eventually have a shelf life, and it runs out. Jesus is the groom that provides wine that never runs out. I'm reminded so much of Psalm 92. Listen to this. Psalm 92, verse 4, uh, 12 through 15 says, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Now listen to the second part. They still bear fruit when in old age they are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Here's what's great about being in the kingdom, about Jesus being the true groom, is that for the rest of your life, you never run out of the joy. In fact, it gets better and better as you go. Would some older Christians say amen to that? Is it true? Because some of us younger Christians want to give up sometimes. Some of us preaching, 36-year-old Christians wonder, can I do this the rest of my life? I see a lot of my contemporaries that are my age, that their life is going well, and they've got things that look better, and their life is easier, and I wonder, man, can I do this for the next 30 or 40? Then I'm reminded of some older Christians in this fellowship right now that I look at them and say, man, Jesus gets better and better and better as you go. He never runs out. You see, when you're connected to Jesus, not just in your mind, but in your heart, in your soul, when he becomes the groom that fulfills your life, you never run out of joy. Life gets better. Jesus is the groom, the one you are actually looking for, the thing you think you need. And here's what I love about Jesus, and I'll finish with this. He actually wants to be that for you. I don't know how you think about Jesus if he's like up in heaven right now, like, you know, stroking his you know, beard and thinking like, oh, I don't like you and you frustrate me and you're never perfect enough. And look what I did for you. And he's like sort of passive aggressive Jesus. I don't know how you interact with him. But Jesus is the groom, not only that you need, but the one that he wants you. How do I know? Listen to Psalm 62 verse 5. Isaiah's prophesying about what it will be like when Jesus comes. He says, "As the groom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you." The minister has the most unique seat in the house when a wedding happens. I love it. You stand up front next to the groom. You get to sit with him when he's nervous, you know, back in the room and you walk out and okay. And you get this opportunity where you're standing there and you kind of you and the groom are the first to see the bride and man The adornment that a bride puts on is just ravishing and beautiful, and they come around the corner and they start walking down, and it's not just the bride, and everybody turns and looks, but you glance to your left and you see the groom, and always they're overwhelmed with joy and excitement. Can't contain it. So many of them cry, and they just can't believe this woman is coming to give her life to him, and he's going to give his life to her. Now watch. Jesus says, the Bible says here, Isaiah 62 It's exactly how God thinks when you start coming home. When you turn the corner, he goes, I've been waiting. Where you been? Let's get this party started. I won't run out. The joy that I have to give you is different than any other joy, and it will never stop, and you'll be fully satisfied. Are you tired of running around looking for joy in empty wells? drinking a little bit here and there, pretending to be something that you're not, begging to fit into some place that you don't belong, and all of a sudden you realize what you're looking for is right in front of you. It's Jesus. you got to be like Mary and know you're empty and tell Jesus, I need help. you got to be like the servants. You notice them? They don't say a word, they just do exactly what Jesus says. He says, fill the jars up, they fill it up. He says, get the water, take it to the guy, they get the water, and they take it to the guy. They know they're taking hand-washing water to the master of the feast. They don't care, they're listening to Jesus. But you also have to be like the groom in this story, who took credit for what Jesus did. The master of the feast calls the groom and says, why would you do this? Most people put out the good wine then hold the bad for later. You saved the best for last and the groom doesn't say, I didn't do it, he does he. He just goes, oh yeah, okay. You see, what it means to be a Christian is to actually let what Jesus did for you be what you hold on to. Is it time for you to find the joy in marrying Jesus? If it is, die to yourself. Be baptized to become one with him. Let's do it today. Let's stand and sync.